Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, are we living in a simulation? So we're not actually going to answer that question today, definitively. All right, so the spoiler alert, this is going to be disappointing. Yeah, but we are going to be talking about the famous simulation argument that some of our listeners may have heard of. Right. I mean, this pops up every so often, but I think the last time was uh, Elon Musk about a year ago started, uh, I think he said somewhere that there's a billion to one chance we're living in base reality and people freaked out. I think Elon (laughs) Musk is largely responsible in modern times for people discussing this This more frequently. Yeah. So he's kind of acting as the popularizer here. But the idea itself, uh, when we're talking about the quote-unquote simulation argument actually goes back to a paper by Nick Bostrom, the Oxford philosopher. As so many of these things do. Who's, you know, written about all manner of futuristic uh, topics. And, you know, this sort of follows the same pattern as the AI existential risk argument that we see, where Nick Bostrom writes some important papers or documents, putting out some original ideas. Elon Musk reads those, gets very excited, talks about them to the press. The press kind of quotes him badly. And it sort of is this game of telephone that ends up in, I think, a pretty rough understanding by the public of the actual concepts. Um, And I think, you know, the simulation argument is something that uh, if you look for it on the internet, you'll find a lot of articles trying to tear it down. And my impression of those articles was that they didn't actually oftentimes understand what the real argument was. Right. I've seen a bunch of those, and they didn't seem like they really were addressing the, the, the original Bostrom paper, the one from 2003. Yeah. And that, it is an interesting paper, yeah. Yeah, that has a very kind of specific, and as is, as is usually the case with Bostrom, like clearly delineated argument. Yeah. So one of the things that we want to do with this podcast is make that argument super clear, and then, of course, spin off of that into wild speculation like we usually do. Right, right, right. So let's just start with reviewing the original Bostrom argument, right? So let's yeah, exactly. jump into that. Yeah. Um, and, and before we even start on the details, I just want to say what this paper isn't, okay? This is not a paper that argues that we are definitely in a simulation. That's not really what the simulation argument is. Bostrom has said that personally, he would put the chance that we're living in a simulation at around 20% which is still higher than you might think. I mean, that's a significant number. Right. Uh, but that, the point of the paper is not to say we're definitely living in a simulation. The point of the paper is to kind of rule out some possibilities. You know, when we're thinking about futuristic scenarios or science fiction scenarios, basically, if you, once you understand the paper, you realize that some of those might be incoherent or might be impossible. Right. It's kind of like a series of mutually exclusive options. There's like sort of three worlds that are possible maybe equally possible, or he doesn't make any argument about how possible they are relative to each other. They're all possible. But then other worlds that aren't those three don't make sense. And that's the argument that he's... Yeah, so we're going to be talking about those three shortly. But first, the the paper has to get out of the way some just basic overhead, right? Some assumptions. They have to get you on the same page, right? right? So one of the first, like, assumptions of the paper is uh, this fancy term, substrate independence. This comes from the philosophy of mind... And this is something we've talked about before in the podcast, the idea that you can have actual consciousness uh, on a substrate that isn't neurons and like, you know, a biological nervous system. And there's strong forms of this argument that would say that, you know, you could have consciousness on, you know, all manner of substrates, but we basically just need one, right? Whether it's a very advanced computer that's silicon based or something else that can, is able to create a conscious being, right? You have to have that in place. (laughs) Otherwise... 
Yeah, how you a simulation is not possible. Right. So we if just it have turns to grant out that. that there's like neuronal special sauce, then we are not in a world where you can create simulated consciousnesses. So of course we have to be able to do this. Is it weird that neuronal special sauce sort of made me hungry when you said that? That's a very strange phrase. <laughs> Maybe you just haven't had lunch yet. But, what, what you mean by that is like, you know, if there's some like aspect to consciousness that's kind of magical, you know, in the sense, or like, you know, they can't be replicated, you know, with other right. mediums. Yeah. It may, it may not be magical. It might just be like uh, quantum or something. I mean, I, you and I are both skeptics that this exists. Yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm strong manning a little bit here, but, uh, it's it's um, possible, I guess, and some people have argued that that there's something special about uh, biological neurons that um, means that you can't recreate right. consciousness in a machine, even if it's very high resolution. This argument assumes that's not true. Yeah, we're going to assume step one, you can have consciousness in a computer. Right. Okay. The ste- second step and the second assumption that you need is that a more advanced technological sim- civilization than us has to have enough computing power to run a lot of simulations. Right. And today, with our computing power, that wouldn't be possible, but computers continue to improve. And using even today's known and understood physics, we can kind of predict what the limits of computation might be in a more advanced society. Right. And so there's some rough calculation in the paper that I won't go over in detail, but we, you know, it talks about things like if you were to, say, create a computer the size of an entire planet, Right. You know, and repurpose all of that mass for high density computing. You know, how many simulations could you run, uh, and at what level of detail? And you know, the short summary is: Bostrom concludes that you would be able to run millions and millions of these things and still have computing power left over to have a normal, functioning, advanced society. Right. Um, and and part of the step in that argument is not just that these advanced societies should have enough computing power within the realm of physical limitations, but also that simulations themselves, while being costly, are not as costly as you first might think, right? For a few reasons. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, so there's, when you make a simulation, it stands to reason that you're going to do some compression, right? You're not going to, so a completely full resolution simulation that simulated an entire world down to the quantum level is probably not practical with the physics that we know. I mean, essentially, you'd be remaking a new reality if you... Right, it might take a universe-sized computer yeah. right, to, to do something like that. That's sort of impossible. So right. by definition, you need to compress these things somewhere. You're not going to do a perfect simulation. And there's a lot of reason to think that you'd be able to cut some corners in various places. Yeah. Um, so I feel like we can divide it into the environment that the simulated beings have to live in and then the minds of the simulated beings themselves. Right. Of these two things, the environment is probably the less costly thing to create for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, for one, you don't actually have to simulate all the environment all the time. Uh, so to give an example, if your simulated beings live on sort of a version of planet Earth, you do not need to simulate really what's going on in Mars. You just need to make a <laughs> believable picture of Mars in the sky <laughs> that the uh, that people can occasionally look up at with well, telescopes. Well, all they have to simulate is the video feed back from the rover, right? And the <laughs> and the point of light in the sky. Exactly. But, yeah. Um, you don't have to simulate atoms, really, unless someone's looking through a microscope at them. Right. Uh, you don't even have to simulate the inside of a closet if the closet door is shut. In other words, you don't have to render things. I mean, if, if people are familiar with uh, right. programming, say, with the way that, say, like a video game works. Right. 
uh, when you're playing a big open world video game, uh, they're only rendering what you're looking at, right? They're in some sense they're keeping track of data of where other things are in space, right? But you know, but they're not doing the visual rendering on something that's behind you, exactly, right? So they've done some optimization, and it's obviously like a futuristic society would do some optimization as well, right? It's unclear how much, but yes, they would be able to optimize to some degree. Yeah. And so we would have, yeah, there'd be a lot of chances to basically not draw what you're, what no one's looking at or only draw it in a low res if it's only being looked at from far away and things like that. Right. Um, yeah. So if it was very optimized, that's one way you could get a lot of savings for sure. Yeah. And that's in the environment. So the environment actually is not the most costly part of this. The right. more costly part is you need pretty high resolution of your simulated being. So they're actually conscious. Yes. We don't know exactly how high a resolution because consciousness, again, we don't really understand how much complexity it takes to create it. But, you know, say the level of individual neurons might be one possible uh, level of resolution that would be good enough. And so, you know, Bostrom does some more quick math about like roughly what we think the computing power of the human brain is. If our readers are familiar with, say, Kurzweil's writing, they've seen this kind of estimate done before. Uh, and those estimates of what it would take to, say, simulate a human brain uh, would suggest that you could pretty easily simulate a lot of them with these very large computers that advanced societies would have. So there doesn't really seem to be any physical obstacle to an advanced society having tons and tons of convincing simulated worlds, millions and millions of them populated by uh, billions of uh, emulated Sentient, beings. Yeah. Uh, software beings. Yeah. Yeah. So th those are, so we've established that simulation is possible. That's really like the first part of the paper. Now, okay, now we get into the by, core by of it. By possible, we mean theoretically possible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It's Ex possible for civilizations to develop simulation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you have to believe that. Otherwise, there's no point going further. But that seems pretty reasonable to me to grant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we get into the heart of the paper, right? We get into these three possibilities. We'll call them world number one world number two, and world number three. And we're living in one of these three worlds. Okay, we're going to start with world number one. This is not the good world. This is not the one you want to be living in, okay? Because world number one is one where Bostrom says, quote, the human species is very likely to go extinct before reaching a post-human stage, or specifically before being able to make simulations. Right. So there's two reasons why that might happen, right? Yes. Uh, so one would be that we, we kill ourselves, right? Which could happen a few different ways. Right. One is that it's hard to survive and we die before it happens. Yeah. And one of the easiest ways that we could kill ourselves is with our own technology. Yes. Uh, like long before we're like creating simulations, uh, we could blow ourselves up with nuclear weapons. We could unleash a terrible pandemic that's biologically engineered. We could, you know, any number of threats could destroy us of our own design. Right. Um, and then the other thing is that maybe it's not so much that we die off uh, easily, but that it's very hard to become post-human, right? Right. So we may... So you maybe know, it yeah. just takes way longer than like we currently imagine it would and is just much harder to accomplish. Right. We could exist at a certain level of technology for you know millennia, not really quite able to get to this uh, level where we can have a lot of simulations. Right. And if we do that, we will eventually like run up on carrying constraints and like, you know, use up the earth and what have you. Right. Even if we're like, if we, yeah. if we never become post-human, but we could, 
progress somewhat from where we are today, we find that it's much harder to get to that next place, then yeah, we might not destroy ourselves, but still just never get there. Just We could also get into one of these, you know, post-apocalyptic cycles mm. that Hollywood likes to portray. Yeah, that's <laughs> where, where, you know, like civilization collapses and then we rebuild, and then we collapse and so we rebuild. I mean, we've talked about on the podcast before. I don't actually find this scenario plausible. It seems like one of those times we're just going to all but, die if that if that keeps happening. Yeah, I, I think most likely if we're in world number one, it's because we're going to destroy ourselves. Right, right. So, so this is why you hope you're not in this world. And this is why I think, you know, Elon Musk is, has so much certainty here. And I think one of the things he does is he just kind of writes off this outcome because I think he's a, sort of an optimist. And this is sort of a useless outcome to think about because it's just... It doesn't lead you anywhere. It's just sort of depressing to accept this one. Right. Although he does say that, like, either we're going to do this or we're going to destroy ourselves. So it's not like he's not thinking of it. Yeah. But uh, obviously, you can't really plan for the calamitous event that ends civilization. That's not... Yeah, yeah. For your own sanity, you want to kind of, you know, plan for the the remaining two options. Right. Okay, so that's world number one. Now, world number two, I think, is is actually pretty good. I kind of like this world. Um, so this world is one where Bostrom says, quote, any post-human civilization is extremely unlikely to run a significant number of simulations of their evolutionary history or variations thereof. In other words, they're not interested in running simulations in the future. Right. It may be that running many, many simulations is not a great use of their resources. Yeah. And I mean, there, (laughs) there's a lot of reasons why this could be in. This is one is fun to think about, but also, you know, very hard to think about because yeah. we're trying to know the mind of some advanced civilization that may or may not resemble us. I mean, the best we can kind of do here is extrapolate from how we feel today and assume that maybe our descendants are somewhat similar. Right. But we know that that's pretty limited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This immediately brings up the topic, too, of what on earth would you be using simulations for, right? So one of the obvious things is for to gain knowledge, which is one of the things we use simulations for today. Right. Both academic knowledge, like simulating history to see how it, would, how it went or how it could go different with different assumptions. Absolutely. Or also, you might run many simulations of the present to try to gain new knowledge. Sure. So you could imagine that you're some post-human grad student... Uh, doing a history paper on World War II, this ancient, ancient war that occurred. You can see how it might be useful to you to say, you know, be able to run several versions of that war with like slight tweaks to see what happens. You can see how modern day historians, if they had this power, would, you know, find this extremely enlightening and a great learning tool. Right. But of course, immediately that calls to mind several ethical implications (laughs) Because let's say if your topic that you're studying is World War II, yes, and your simulation is sophisticated enough that it contains conscious beings, then in order to obtain this knowledge, you're recreating these atrocities over and over again in a machine. Right. I, people might be reluctant to create a Holocaust machine with sentient beings inside it. Even if there is a lot to be learned, I feel like it, it, it has to be quite a lot. And this leads me to like a general sort of thought about this world, which is, I think it matters to what extent you can get useful information out of these simulations short of consciousness. Right. So I'm not sure that we know that yet, but at some point there'll be some knowledge of like, which problems are so complex that if you don't model all the individual minds, you really don't get useful data out of 
the simulation Mm -hmm. versus which ones are like more driven by sociopolitical forces or other larger forces that you can model at a more abstract level and not have literal like software's Holocaust victims or whatever running around your your computer because I, I I would imagine there'd be significant ethical interest in not creating extra you know digital suffering. <laughs> yeah, you might be able to get pretty good historical data using a lower resolution simulation. So, for example, one way that might happen is I mean we're talking about a very advanced society, so they would have very sophisticated computers and very sophisticated math and simulation techniques. One would hope or expect. So they might be able to do a simulation that is extremely detailed and simulates these various actors, but does it at a level that's, you know, one step below when things actually become conscious. Mm -hmm. Or they might be able to do it in such a way that the actual feeling of suffering is simply just left out, right? Maybe, Maybe they even are conscious, but like there's no... So yeah, granularity is another like big open question with these simulations. We just don't know what kind of access the creators will have to the various details inside the simulation. Well, they would have access, but it's, it's not clear how easy they'd be able to easily, they'd be able to exercise that control. Right. I mean, would it make sense for them to micromanage at that level? It might also be possible to to create, this is more of a philosophical concept, but this idea of a a zombie, right? Somebody who acts and behaves like a conscious being, but isn't actually having conscious experience. Right, right, Uh, right. Like if there's some part that creates consciousness of the program that you can just leave out. I'm skeptical of that. I tend to more subscribe to the view that consciousness will just arise with a certain level of Right. Complexity, but these are all possibilities. The evidence from the animal kingdom seems to suggest that consciousness is more like a emergent property. Like as you go up, the, as you get yeah. smarter, you get more conscious, but you don't ever get to like zero consciousness really until you're like a rock. Yeah. So, so yeah. So just to kind of break this down a bit more, because uh, we're talking about a few different possibilities. Right. So one is that they figure that okay, they can do their historical research without making conscious beings. It's just not necessary. They can find a better way to do it. Right. Uh, The other possibility is that they're not interested in doing historical research because they may not have quote unquote grad students in this future that cared about this at all. Right. They might not be interested that much in what regular humans did or cared about or were like because they're post-human and they are different enough from us that it's just not relevant to them. Yeah. The argument against that is, I guess, we're pretty different from the our own ancestors, and yet we do archaeology and other kinds of research into our own past because it's inherently interesting to us where we were, even though we're different. Yeah. So maybe that's true of future post-human societies, but maybe not. Maybe that's one of the parts of human nature that they don't take along with them. We can make more interesting guesses if we extrapolate and assume that there's something like us, right? Right. My personal read on today's society, which is actually kind of at odds with what Bostrom implies in the paper, is that if simulation technology was available tomorrow, I'm not sure it would get widely adopted with today's ethics. Or or it's sort of an open question to me, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, yes, people are okay with things like animal testing. They're okay with factory farms. They're okay with people in faraway countries (laughs) suffering atrocities. As long as they don't hear too much about it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of it. I think, can you... How does the simulation work? Can you pull somebody out of the simulation and ask them if they're feeling pain and, you know, see a video of a human-like person saying that they are? I think you could. Because if that's not the way it works, if it outputs data in a more abstract way, 
uh, I think people are more likely to accept ethically questionable practices inside the box. But I mean, I feel like a future organization, or sorry, more of a present day organization, if we're assuming this technology became available suddenly in today's world, that would say like, you know, people for the ethical treatment of simulated persons. (laughs) I think they would be able to do that. They'd be able to take video of a simulated person in one of these World War II simulations and show it to everyone and say like, come on, are we really going to do this? And I think a lot of people would be bothered by that. Sure, sure. I'm not saying this wouldn't happen, like simulations wouldn't occur because just banning things worldwide is pretty much impossible. But I feel like it would be pretty widely condemned in today's world. I think that's certainly a possibility. Whereas like in a post-human civilization that's significantly more advanced and perhaps smarter than us, right? they might look at us more like ants and they might not have those hangups. I don't know. Right, right, right. And it really, I think it depends on both their attitude toward total suffering and their attitude toward whether they think it is valuable to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other use case besides research, right, Mm -hmm. is uh, entertainment. Right. Right. And so this one, I think when, when it comes with to the ethical objections, I think is even harder to justify. Just saying that like for me to have like a more interesting, you know, violent video game simulation to play, I'm going to subject all these simulated beings to pain. Seems like a really bad ethical argument that I find a hard time accepting. The only way that makes sense to me is if the uh, post-human society in question is so different from us that they don't regard pain as negative or something. Exactly. I mean, which it's possible that they'd be that different from us, but that's pretty different (laughs) at that point. Um, Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's the only way that makes sense. And back to the subject of interest, it depends whether or not they'd find this entertaining or not. I mean, I can see the entertainment value of say, like being able to go back in time and, you know, live out the life of, uh, you know, a medieval king at a like key historical moment or something. Uh, Like I can see how that would maybe be fun. Uh, I'm not sure that like a future being is going to find that a great way to entertain themselves. They might have a lot better options. Right, right. They might even just be able to directly stimulate their brain, whatever brain centers they have. Uh, or, or they may have a whole host of other options to get pleasure that don't require such an elaborate scheme. Right. It really depends on how similar to like us today they end up feeling. This second world would also apply if they decide that ethically they are want to create simulations, but they want always for them to know. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think this goes to the sort of meaning of the word simulation. I think it's actually important just definitionally to point out that simulation implies a certain amount of deceit, right? So there may be cause to create lots and lots of artificial beings, but if they know that they're artificial beings, then there's no deceit happening. And so, you know, a lot of this, what we're our discussion doesn't really apply here uh, in that case, right? So like... Well, it doesn't apply to this argument because we wouldn't have to worry we were in a simulation and didn't know it. Exactly. So uh, yeah, I mean, it would not change our um, assumption of of whether this is base reality. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But it would still be a world in which advanced technical civilizations are making simulations. But you could imagine a simulation where... You're walking down the street and everyone else is walking around doing their thing. And then all of a sudden a window pops up in front of your face that says, you are in a simulation. We're trying to learn X, Y, and Z. We're required to tell you because of, you know, ordinance, whatever, whatever from the future. Right. Because that's what we consider ethical. In other words, I guess you could argue that it's more ethical to simulate things if you inform people that they're simulated. As long as that doesn't 
destroy the usefulness of it, right? Because at least in some situations, you won't act in the authentic way unless you know uh, that the world is real and your consequences have exactly or your actions have consequences. And especially if you're trying to gain information in these social science topics like history or economics, then you know informing the actors that they're what they're doing isn't really real is pretty badly messing with your data. Possibly. It depends on what it is you're measuring, yeah. I guess. But yeah. So, okay. So just to, just to sum up, if it's not the first world, which is where people die or they never get there to making simulations in the first place, and it's not the second world where virtually everybody uh, who does get there is uninterested for whatever reason in making simulations, uh, then there's only a thir- one more possibility that it could be. And that's the world where simulations are possible. And they're plentiful. And they're plentiful. And what Bostrom argues basically is, if it's that world, then our chances of living in a simulation are very high. Right. And so here's how he gets to this idea, right? Which is that if post-human civilizations make lots of simulations, we know, based upon the math earlier in the paper, that they're going to be able to make millions and millions of them. Right. So you'd have one real world that was like sort of the fundamental level of reality. Right. But then you would have millions and millions of simulated worlds. Right. Right. And we don't know which of these worlds we're in. If you just pull a world out of the hat, right, you got to assume that the odds are you're not going to pull one of the worlds out that is the actual real one among the millions of simulated ones. Right, 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 right. So we don't have any special knowledge of which world we're in, and we know that there's many millions of worlds and only one of them is the real one. So we have to assume that it's a high likelihood that the one we're in is not the one real. Right. And people might think, well, wouldn't there be some way that you could look at the reality around you and identify features of it that it might imply that it's either the simulated world or the real world? Uh, and the fact of the matter is no, because we're stuck in this reality. We, any, everything we look at could be a deception created by our simulators we don't have any sense of what a typical real world versus a simulated world looks like. We don't have that kind of perspective to draw those kinds of comparisons. We only have a sample size of one, which is the reality we're stuck in. So there's no way to really reason about you know, whether our world is simulated or not. And again, in this third world where simulated universes are common, just playing the odds, we probably are in a simulated one. Now, I, I, I want to talk about, you know, world two versus world three for a second, right? So, so world two is one where nobody makes simulations, right? And world three is one where everybody makes simulations and therefore we're probably simulated. Bostrom makes the point that in order for world two to be true, it can't just be that, you know, most civilizations are not interested in making simulations, right? There has to be an overwhelming convergence among all possible post-human civilizations that they're not going to make simulated universes. And in other words, like every single post-human civilization has to tend towards this realization that making these simulated universes is either uninteresting or bad. Right, right. Because it's similar to like piracy. It basically only takes one. Right. It only takes one in the sense that, if again, if we're filling a hat with universes and we're going to draw one out and that's the one that we're going to be in, mm-hmm. right? You can fill that hat with simulated universes pretty easily if you only have one possible post-human civilization that deems it interesting to make the simulated universes. Because if that particular post-human civilization decides to make millions and millions of these, then the hat fills up 
And all of a sudden we have the same math, which says that most likely we're simulated. Right. So it's got to be like a really strong conclusion that every civil society would basically get to right around the time that they also get simulation technology. Well, you can imagine that existing, like, sure, like these ethical possible. objections, for example. Right. So, so in this world three, yeah. right, where simulations are possible and interesting and people in the future make them and therefore we are simulated. Right. What, what does this actually tell us? Well, for one thing, it makes certain science fiction scenarios that are popular actually somewhat incoherent. Uh, an easy one to point to is Star Trek. So the, the proposed world of, say, Star Trek The Next Generation, right, is one where you have, again, a very advanced civilization, technologically mm-hmm. speaking, mm-hmm. that is making simulations. There's famously the holodeck in Star Trek, right? Right. Um, and so by Bostrom's logic then, you know, for Star Trek to exist, everybody in the Star Trek cast would have to actually be a simulation, right? right. Because that's a future where simulations are possible and common. That means that any given set of people well, just are simulated. It's vanishingly likely that the Star Trek universe is the real base reality. Right. In fact, it's probably some universe-sized holodeck thing. Yeah. It like, has holodecks in it. Exactly. Right. It's kind of like, like, and actually, like, Philip K. Dick tends to get this right. It's like, once you have, like, simulation technology, <laughs> right. then it's, all of a sudden you know that, okay, I'm also simulated. And it simulation's all the way down. And how deep does it go? Right, right, yeah. right, yeah. And so maybe now is the time to talk about, uh, you know, the layers of simulated universes that can crop up. Now, I mean, computing power and, and limitations thereof can be put constraints on this, but if we assume that we are simulated, mm-hmm. right, then our simulators, right, the people that made us, have to also be making the same assumption that they themselves are probably simulated. And in fact, they themselves might be. I mean, this may go back multiple levels. Right. And the only constraints being like at a certain point, it might like whatever the base level of reality may find their computers being overtaxed, you know, and want to put a stop to it. Or I've seen it's possible that at the like at the most simulated level at the like the lowest level you might stop being able to functionally compute simulations because you you can't call on enough resources from the from the source computer. Right. Well, that's sort of what I mean. Yeah. They yeah. they might run up against uh, limitations. Right. Right. But I think math wise, it Bostrom seems to think it's totally plausible that you might have several levels just operating. Sure. Um. So I don't know, you know, maybe it's seven levels or something at the point that it starts to like overtax the base system. But, you know, I have no idea and it's impossible to say, but we, you know, any, you know, what, what's interesting is that our gods, so to speak, if we have them, right, our simulators mm-hmm. would vary in a pretty big way from traditional God, right? And this is maybe a good time also to talk about the religious implications of this, because this does get talked about in the context of like a possible justification for God existing, right? right? Like a novel justification for the existence of God. Right. Could be that, you know, God is essentially our simulator. But, you know, God in the- First church of God simulator. Yeah, but God in the traditional conception, like in most religions, as I understand it, is kind of like the be-all, end-all, right? Like it's like the last stop. Well, in Western religion, he's the creator, which I think yeah. is more like the simulator. But then, yeah, in Eastern traditions, it's more just like a, an everything thing. Well, sure. But yeah. I, I mean in the, the more creator sense, because I think that's the one that's relevant. Sure, here. sure. I, I think, say, for example, like the typical monotheistic God, just to be more specific, right. is one that is the creator and was not themselves created. Right. But what's different here about this situation is if we have simulators, then they themselves probably have simulators, or at least think they do. 
or I have to assume that's possible, right? It, it's sort of more like the Greek gods, you know, Zeus and his lot, the Olympians, all killed their parents. Uh, uh, the Titans, Titans or something. The Titans, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, Uranus and uh, and that generation of gods. They created the 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 humans gods, and then the humans gods, I guess, overthrew them in the mythology, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess that analogy is complicated by the fact that they actually killed their creators. Uh, they, well, like the Titans are immortal, still- but they're like banished or something, oh, okay, right? Yeah. I think they chopped them up and you know distributed them among the heavens or something sure. like that. I don't, I'm fuzzy on, <laughs> on Greek mythology, but something along those lines. Um, so I think some mythologies have this idea of like a god created by a greater god. And what I think is interesting about the Titan analogy is that Titans are not really the gods of humans. Like, Titans don't regulate human affairs. They regulate, like, god affairs. Sure, so maybe that is so a good on that, analogy. on that level, it's kind of a good analogy, because we would assume that the simulators' simulators don't give a fuck about us, but they care about what the simulating society is doing. Well, I mean, they might care about us, like, you know, their, their grandchildren, <laughs> like, like two levels down. Yeah. Um, and actually, like, one of the more philosophically interesting things that Bostrom discussed near the end of the paper is the possibility of a kind of virtuous cycle that would keep people somewhat in line. Which is to say mm. that, like, if our simulators are trying to decide how to treat us, ethically speaking, right, and they think that they themselves are subject to the ethical treatment of a level above them, mm-hmm. you know, they might decide, and they also, they, they think that maybe they're being judged for how they treat us. That's a bit of a stretch, but okay. I mean, possibly. I mean, generally, like, speaking, you know, everybody in this chain is both able to pass judgment and able to be judged. And, you know, I think those things are likely to influence each other at least a little bit, Uh right? Because you're going to pass judgment in such a way, uh, thinking about the fact that, like, if you you judge people badly or harmfully, that you yourself might be treated that way by the level above you. So it could could kind of keep people in line. Mm -hmm. Actually, that brings up, like, another of the weirder points at the end of Bostrom's paper that seems like kind of a stretch to me, which he puts out the idea that it's possible that all suffering we see is actually an illusion or implanted memories of suffering. In other words, if we, if we do have ethical simulators, right, then they might have some interest in designing it that way, but still fooling us into thinking that suffering is real in order to get good data. It's another possibility. I mean, he proposes this as a solution to the traditional problem of evil, which is like, you know, why does God let good bad things happen to good people. Right, right. right. In other words, that seems to apply here too. Like our simulators must be cruel to allow us to live in this world where bad things happen uh, unless they have this advanced like sort of suffering, like, you know, stopping algorithm in place. Right. Or at least by our standards. I mean, they may just have very different standards of what suffering matters. And And that seems more likely that they just have different ethical guidelines. Right. Right. Or we're not simulated. Again, I want to stress the point that like, you know, we may not be in world number three, right? Like, well, it's important to remember that we do not live in a world where simulation is currently possible, right? Mm-hmm. So until somebody invents a simulator that has con- you know, convincingly conscious-seeming beings inside it, we don't have to make this determination at all. <laughs> well, not just we don't have to, we can't. We can't. Right? We like, have no way to. We don't really have any right. data one way or another. Right. And again, we're not gonna, we can't expect to see like glitches in the matrix or whatever that are going to give things away because that's a really easy thing for a simulator to prevent. In fact, Bostrom makes the analogy to dreaming, say like, you know, even with, you know, the, the like weak evolutionary technology of our brains, we're able to have dreams that fool us into thinking they're real 
you know, and that's without any kind of advanced trickery. Sure. Right? So these advanced civilizations ought to be able to pretty easily convince us that what we're in is real. Um, and if there was a glitch that became apparent, or if it did seem like that the societies they were simulating were starting to figure it out, they could always rewind it, you know? Uh, right, or change the memories, or exactly. there's so many different ways that they could potentially intervene in our world, uh, yeah. depending on the specifics of their system, uh, that you can't really expect that there would be, that you would be able to ever perceive outside the system. But what is interesting is that going forward, right, mm-hmm. like you were alluding to, we are going to get more data that might actually help us start to narrow it down between these three worlds. For example, you can rule out world one once we start having simulations. Right. Right? Then we've proven that we've gotten there. Right. Right? Or at least like our example of a civilization has gotten there. Right. So like in another 50 years, we might be able to revise the odds here. Right. Yeah. And to me, the most compelling part of world two is the possibility that consciousness is not necessary for simulations to be useful and that we'll have pre-conscious we'll have tremendous numbers of pre-conscious simulations and maybe Mm -hmm. small numbers of conscious simulations that to me is like the one that strikes me as the most likely scenario that is not us being in a simulation so i think we'll see some data about that moving forward too as we see how useful or not simulations that approach but do not reach consciousness can be Right, right. Um, because we'll get there first. I mean, we'll get there before we're, obviously, before we're doing fully conscious ones. Uh, and, and, of course, we already run many non-conscious simulations now, and they appear to be useful in at least limited contexts. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, again, it's not clear how much added value you get from right. consciousness, uh, or at least simulation. that level of resolution. Right. So it may be a lot, maybe some, but not enough to... Um, get over the ethical issues, or it might be so much that, you know, that we do a lot of it. I think all of those are, are reasonably likely. So at this point, we've pretty much covered most of the paper, right? But there's a, right. a, a couple, um, you know, spin-off conversations to have that are fun. Um, so one is like a possible objection that you could make that okay. I think turns out to be false, but it's sort of interesting to talk about, um, which is that uh, this paper is that Bostrom has written is trying to use empirical data to make its point. So for example, there's these math estimates that we've alluded to trying to determine what is the possible computing power in the future? What is the required computing power to make a human brain? And how does that line up? You know, he's doing all this math, which is based upon real world physics. But of course, if the real world is simulated, then aren't all those calculations completely bogus and doesn't the argument destroy itself? Well, and yeah, can you trust any of those? Right. 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 But uh, that objection actually really doesn't hold, right? I mean, that's an objection that you might have. And, and the counterargument to that objection is that, well, if everything is simulated and therefore the empirical observations are wrong, then we've proven it's a simulation. Right. <laughs> right. And if we are in the real reality, then we can rely on what our eyes and observations tell us. Right. If we happen to be in base reality, then the empirical data works fine. Yeah. And if the empirical data doesn't work, then the simulation argument's already correct. Yeah. So yeah. So that's it. Can't that doesn't actually uh, negate any. So of So I thought sense. that was an amusing objection and yeah, counter argument. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. I like um, that. Another like piece of writing on this topic that came at, shortly after Bostrom's paper is that by uh, Robin Hansen, who's been a guest on our podcast. Before. Oh right. Yes. Um. And so Robin Hansen attempts to do the impossible here. Right. He attempts to like draw conclusions about how you should actually live 
uh, if you think you're in a simu- simulation. Right. Well, of course, he, he, he wants to jump to something more interesting, which is how, do you, how does this actually affect you? Right. And, and Bostrom, right. like, specifically declines to do this. He basically says, like, you know, we still got to just live our lives and try to learn what we can from whatever reality, fake or not, we're being presented with. But Hansen says, no, okay, we can draw some weak conclusions, okay? Okay. So here's our Hansen's interesting, but I think somewhat suspect conclusions here. Okay. So number one is that if you think you might be living in a simulation, then all else equal, you should, number one, care less about others. Okay? <laughs> okay. So- uh, It sounds very Hansonian. Yeah. I mean, so right up way, that's not a great conclusion uh, to have people drawing, uh, just because of what that implies ethically. But the reasoning here is that, I mean, for one thing, you only know that your own consciousness is simulated to a full degree, right? Right, right, right. But one of the compression schemes that might be happening, say, is that people that are far away from you, say in other countries, might not be part of the main program that's being simulated. In other words, if I'm in a simulation where they're trying to learn about the U.S. and like what it was like in 2017 then they may not actually need a high-resolution simulation of, you know, say, Asia. So, arguably, maybe I shouldn't care about what's happening in Asia, unless, of course, I travel there, in which case the program has to start rendering those people. Right, right. It it makes your, like, solipsistic instincts, like... a little stronger, basically, because you, you're you never, even in reality, you're never totally sure that other people are conscious, right? You only right. know for certain about yourself. But this makes you even more suspicious that other people might be partially conscious or or, or yeah. other, otherwise simulacra. By the way, I don't necessarily buy this. I mean, there's a lot of ways to problematize it. But. I mean, yeah, there might be other reasons to care about people besides this, but that's interesting. That's funny. Okay. okay. So Robin Hanson's conclusion number two is that if you think you're living a simulation, you should live more for today. Right. Because they could shut it off at any time. They could right? shut it off at any time. Right. They could be like, right. we've learned what we need to learn. And we haven't talked much yet about the, the prospect of being shut down. We'll come back to that in a second. But right. yeah, definitely. If you think that's a possibility, um, you should live more for today. Now, arguably that often is just a good policy to have since we die. Uh, at least with today's technology. Right, and since we can die kind of randomly, like hit yeah. by a bus or something. Right. But, it, but it does have implications for something like, say, global warming. I guess if you truly believed we were living in a simulation that was going to be shut down in 10 years, then you wouldn't care about global warming, I suppose. Right, right, because the time scale on which that brings real promises more like 100 years. You'd have to have a reasonable assumption that the simulation was going to run yeah. long enough for that to matter. Again, this isn't exactly the most like pro-social conclusion to draw coming from Hansen. Well, but, but you're, you can expect anti-social conclusions from the idea that like you're less certain that other people exist. Right? Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's going to in general trend toward anti-social. Yeah. Right. Although some of these I think are, are more positive and we're getting to one now. So his third conclusion, uh, if you think you're living in a simulation uh, then all else equal, you should make your world look more likely to become rich. Right. Which right. is his weird way of saying you should make your world more likely to look like it's in world number three, that it's going to get to the point of making simulations. And the reason is, is that your descendants who simulated you managed to make simulations. And assuming that they're interested in stories About relating themselves. to themselves right. or to civilizations that end up becoming themselves, you should make yourself trend in that direction. Because if you start trending towards, you know, blowing yourself up, uh, maybe that's not something there as is as relatable to them. Right. Well, and if you do blow yourself up or something like that, they're likely to shut you off at that point. 
By the way, I like the general idea that this sort of like all these kind of assume that, you know, these super powerful descendants of ours are kind of like watching us on a TV show uh, and like sort of deciding whether or not to like, like re-up it for a new season or oh, not. Yeah, they're voting at home like it's a, you know, Earth survivor. Yeah, yeah. Especially the two that are coming up, right? Right. So like the fourth one is that if you think you're living in a simulation, then all else equal... Uh, you should expect to and try to participate in more pivotal events. Uh, make sure they happen and make sure you keep them going. Because again, right. if they're watching the TV show of Planet Earth 2017, um, chances are... Season 2017. You know, they're not <laughs> there. The reboot? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> like you're, um, you know, you sitting on the couch, you know, watching reality TV shows or whatever is not what they're tuning in for. You know, they're tuning in for the, like, the big, grand, world-changing, pivotal events. Right. Right? So you want to be near those and part of those storylines, and you want to keep those storylines going so the show doesn't get canceled. Right, right, right. Um, also, like, again, like, the farther you wait, away you are from the pivotal event, the less likely you might be rendered in full resolution. right. Although your own conscious experience seems to be some evidence that you are rendered in full resolution. For now, but if you like drift off of the main story arc, you could essentially be shut down. I see. At some point in the future. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and to that end, he also suggests you should yourself be more entertaining and dramatic, right? Yeah. This is the fifth one, is right. that you should be more entertaining and dramatic for the same reason, just to make a good story. Right. Oh, okay. Like live a big dramatic life. Got it. Right. And, and one of the funny side points to that is he talks about it might even be good to be a martyr. Right. Because while a martyr dies, a martyr typically dies in a spectacular and interesting way. Right. And then you could sort of end up in reruns. So if all you're interested in doing is like maximizing like the number of times your consciousness exists. Right. Which is a weird thing to be interested in, but okay, sure. Well, with the conceptions of identity that a lot of these, you know, transhumanists have where it's like, you know, it's not really about continuity so much as it's like the pattern of your consciousness existing right. in many copies. If that's all you want to do, you just want to exist as many times in as many realities as possible, then die a big spectacular death, you know, that's going to, you know, make it into syndication. So you want to be a Joan of Arc or something. Sure. And the sixth one is that if you think you're in a simulation, it's possible that some of the famous people around you are in fact uh, future people playing parts, like as in a video game. Right. Right. So if you know a famous person, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe all famous people are actually these post-human aliens, <laughs> essentially like playing roles, right? Because it, it, if you're going to play a role, chances are you're not going to pick like peasant number five or like homeless person number six. I really should be like six million and five or whatever, but you're going to, you know, pick a, a big personality that has real influence. Right, right. Right. And so Hansen would argue that you should try to stay close to those people, keep them happier and more interested in you begin for the same reason that like you'll be continued to be included in future storylines and not shut down. Right. So that, that's, those are Hansen's con conclusions. I mean, I think you can, you can pretty much like flip almost all of those arguments on their head in some way or the other. And like, I think show how they might be false. Um, and of course, it's based again upon extrapolating, you know, what people of today find interesting and entertaining. So I, I'm, while they're fun to talk about, I, I, I don't actually recommend that our listeners <laughs> draw many conclusions from this, especially because there's only a 20% chance, supposedly, that we're even in a simulation to begin with. So right, right, right. It's like a very weak 
you know, set of considerations. It's interesting because there's some elements to it that sound like traditional religious exhortation and some elements that don't at all sound like that. I'm assuming there are similarities a little bit like assuming there's a God. And then there's some ways in which it's just really not like that, like uh, these sort of antisocial elements. Yeah, yeah. So I just realized that I forgot to mention the most important part of the podcast, which is our novel theory that Ted and I have created, which is known as the David Bowie theory of simulation. Right. And in this theory, um, we can assign an 80% probability to the fact that uh, David Bowie has always been controlled by a post-human playing a video game. Right, right. He's like the character that the post-humans most want to play. So every era of David Bowie has been basically like a different rich person from the future. They keep handing off the controller. Yeah. (laughs) Which is why, you know, David Bowie has gone through so many different uh, fashion changes and sexual identity changes over the years. And musical styles. And why he's so interesting. Right. He's just always basically like, you know, a totally different person, but always with that same physique. The problem is now they've stopped playing the game as David Bowie has sadly deceased. Right. Uh, and the clock is ticking. Once, uh, th- right now they're just watching to see the uh, remaining impact that his cultural relevance will have. And right. once he uh, completely fades from the public's mind, we will be shut when down. When the last David Bowie influenced act stops playing, right? Yeah. That's the day that they turn off <laughs> the simulation. Yeah. So I just wanted to like plant my intellectual flag on that concept before anyone else stole it. Right. So I want to talk more about the issue of being shut down. Okay. Um, right, so, right, right. so this is obviously like, yeah, I mean, we've already just alluded to it now several times because it's a big part of Robin's premise. But if you're going to try to draw any conclusion about what you should do if you think you're in a simulation, just not being shut down is definitely the biggest consideration. Right. This is the biggest thing about this idea, I think, because it's, it's a new existential threat that exists in the universe if, if the simulation right. thing is true. And one of the arguments that's been put forward for why you might get shut down, mm-hmm. right, is, is this, right? Number one, if we start to realize we're in a simulation, so actually having this conversation is dangerous right now, and creating this podcast. I just want to make it very clear we're not in a simulation. Right, we don't actually believe what please we're saying. Please don't turn saying. us off. Yeah, yeah. Please don't, please don't turn us off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because... <laughs> I mean, let's say this like idea really caught on, like Elon Musk really spread this meme around and right. everyone suddenly thinks, just takes it for granted that we're in a simulation. Well, like the church of the simulation starts and people start yeah. gathering on Sundays and talking about it. Exactly. That might kind of annoy our simulators if they, they want us to be unaware, right. um, if that was the whole point. And so they might be like, all right, this is like kind of run its course now, shut it down. The other possibility is like once we start making simulations, right, or getting close to making simulations, then we're going to start creating our own level below us, right? Right. Which is going to drain the computing power of, like, the other machines that are in the at other, like... At the higher levels. At the higher levels in the hierarchy. Right. Right? It's confusing which way the hierarchy goes. But for now, we'll say, like, the higher level, like, the base reality is on top. Is that how we're going to That's do how it? I'm imagining it. Okay. Yeah. And then everybody's inside a computer, inside a computer, inside a computer, inside those realities. Okay. Right. So, so yeah, I mean... Let's say that we're already five levels deep, right? Sure. And we look like we're about to create like the sixth level and like really tax their system. Then they might be like, all right, you know, we're, we're shutting this thing down now. We're resetting it to the middle ages or something. And actually this goes, I think, completely against like one of Robin Hanson's points, which is he says you might want to make your world look more likely to become rich and like it's going to make simulations. 
Yeah, I, I can this, see that going both ways. So I think this is actually a strong argument against that, which is that if we look like we're going to get to simulations, we look like we're going to waste a lot of their resources. Well, not only that, but it, 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 it might just be that that's the moment where they stop being very useful. Yeah. It, is once society can do simulations, you might want to reset the simulation to when society couldn't do simulations because you might have... Good data on the, on the, the pr- later parts, yeah. Right, you might have simulated the present already millions of times mm-hmm. before you ever simulated the past. In other words, like the people of the future might kind of see that as the start of a new era. Right. What, what the, their modern era kind of begins right. when simulations become possible. Right, that's what I mean. Yeah. Right, and so if to the extent that they're interested in previous eras, right, they're not, like once it starts to become too much like their contemporary age, they lose interest. Or they may have a different method of of simulating that this doesn't involve like the entire run-up of history. Yeah. They could just maybe start it at that break point because that is a, that is a big change. Well, and actually, you know, we've talked about like how, I mean, this dovetails a lot with the idea of emulated minds, right? Just in general, right? right? Because that's kind of a required technology for this. Right. So that might be the landmark, you know, that both marks the beginning of simulations and the beginning of emulated minds. And it, it's, that's a pretty big change in history that we've talked about right as robin hansen argued pretty yeah, uh, effectively exactly so yeah. it'd be like yeah we're, we're not interested in you know simulating them go into the m era we want to simulate them in the traditional human era right right and it seems like prehistory would be the most interesting time to simulate uh yeah because you don't have the written records and then you know history uh would be also interesting um and and i've seen people that uh like this Somebody named Peter S. Jenkins wrote a paper that I've only looked at the abstract for, but he like uh, takes the very strong stance here that in order to avoid this kind of stacking simulations within simulations, right? They're very likely to to terminate uh, things down at, at this point in history, and because he thinks we're going to reach the simulation capability sometime in say you know around 2050 potentially, uh, he thinks that we. Long-range planning beyond that date at this point is kind of dumb because he doesn't expect us to live beyond that point. Which well, and that's a kind of an argument similar to the singularity argument. Yeah, right? it is. It's like long-range planning may be impossible past around, it's the same date around 2050 when we expect to um, reach human level uh, or greater AI. It's true. It seems like many of these futuristic arguments arrive at this same kind of con- like singularity point. This is just a different type of singularity. Right. And it's just like similarity. Similarity. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, you can't really, if, if we're going to get reset or, or turned off or whatever is going to happen at that moment, then, then it doesn't make sense to plan beyond then. Or, or if we're going to have our whole world taken over by a, you know, a great intelligence, it doesn't t- make, make sense to plan beyond then in that case either, which I kind of get. And I certainly get, um, vertigo whenever I try to, plan beyond 2050 myself because i don't know what's coming so i can understand that um but it's not totally i'm not 100 percent sure that simulations within simulations would be avoided at least to some degree and then i'm also not totally sure that like we said that they would not want to um continue the simulations on into their own present and beyond i imagine they'd also want to be simulating their own future by right by starting simulations in the present and running them faster than real time. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Let's talk about that for a while. Cause that's an interesting angle, right? Okay. So like once we get to the point that we're let's fast forward a bit, there's a reason we're talking all about like future history students and history professors here, because at this point, since we don't have the capability, right? right we can't possibly be in the future. 
right? But once we pass the similarity point, right? I'm going to go ahead and coin that phrase oh, and geez. use it repeatedly now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Hashtag similarity. <laughs> once we reach the point where we have plentiful simulations yeah. and have proven we're in world three, right. if we reach that point, I should say, right? because we might not, then we have to start considering the possibility of being in a future simulation rather than in just a past simulation. It, <laughs> right? Yes, right. So uh, the real world could be behind us and could be simulating yeah. us in order to steal our technology or something. So we're not there yet, but there will there could come a time <laughs> right. where we don't know if we're actually in the past or the future. <laughs> um, now, I think that there's bigger... Scott Lynchian in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. I think there's more problematic ethical considerations, though, for simulating the future. Because again, if you're, let's say you're these future fancy post-humans that we keep talking about. And hopefully I'm not offending them right now. Uh, <laughs> Please keep us running. We love you. You know, you could see them looking at their ancestors and being like, man, those, those like primitive, like pathetic people. Like we don't care how many times we simulate their world wars. Cause they're like meaningless ants to us. Like, right. you know, we don't have any problem with that. Uh, but you know, simulating their future, they might feel like, wow, no, that's the, those, that's us. Uh, like, like that actually, like, those are people of our stature that look more like us and act more like us. And so they might be more likely to find an ethical problem with that, if that makes sense. Right. I could see that. Um, but yeah, it's possible that they will just think, well, I want to save conscious me from pain. So I'll subject, you know, this other me copy that I don't, can't feel the consciousness of to some pain or some possible pain to see what happens so that I know if, I should, you know, take X course of action or Y. Um, well, also, and in many situations, you may not have reason to anticipate much pain, really, right? Right. So, for example, like, you might just want to know, like, if I make X decision tomorrow, is this going to work out well for me socially in my weird post-human society, whatever, right, right, whatever right. is happening in it. Right, I have no right, idea. Right. And, and so, like, I'm not, you know, expecting, like, a crazy, horrible thing to happen tomorrow. So I'm just going to, like, like, I'm not so really... It's just, I'm imagining a future of, like, an endless number of, uh, of dinner parties in which uh, people are propositioning one another and seeing if they get rejected or not. Just, like... <laughs> and then this, the results are being reported in real time to the actual person. <laughs> Right. There's like, like, like in, one post-human being is running like a million different proposal versions, right. like to see which one actually works. Right. Exactly. In 150 of, uh, uh, of 300 simulations, you got a yes from this person and a no from this one. <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, that's funny to me. I think there's, uh, there's any number of simulative ac activities that the future people might want to do that is like a little bit hard to even wrap your mind around all the uses. I think that's probably a good place to end because we've gotten pretty weird. Yeah, well, we managed to blast it off into... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'll just leave with like sort of the closing thought, which is, are we in a simulation? I don't know. Bostrom says 20%. But if we sort of stay tuned to this technology over the next 50 years, then we might get more information about that question. And I think that's kind of where we'd have to leave it at this point. I agree with that. I'm Ted Cuppard. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.